Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Radio Astros, Episode 72, Blackwater, Part 2. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Astros. I'm one of your hosts, Lady Guinevere, and with me, as always, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi everyone, and thanks for joining us today for the second and concluding part of our action-packed look at the Battle of Blackwater. In part one, we analyse the complex setup and politics behind the battle and set sail with Davos Seaworth in a sequence culminating in the jaw-dropping wildfire explosion that devastated Stannis' fleet. So today we'll pick up where we left off as we follow Tyrion Lannister into battle and his attempt to stay one step ahead of the regrouping attackers. As the de facto Lannister commander defending the city, Tyrion will set forth on a roller coaster journey outside the city walls where the fighting is the thickest. After a close analysis of the raging battle on either side of the river, we'll also discuss the real life historical influences behind the conflict, as well as doing some theory crafting as we consider who the treacherous Mandon Moore was really working for. And finally, we'll take a look at the aftermath of the conflict, from the immediate cost to both sides to the resulting story threads the battle leads into. If it's action, excitement, and analysis you're looking for today, you've come to the right place. And before we begin, we just want to make a quick announcement. Starting on Tuesday, 16th of August, we'll be covering HBO's House of the Dragon. Broadcasting live on YouTube every Tuesday at 7pm Eastern and with a podcast version available Wednesdays, this will be our first foray into show coverage on our own channel. We're very excited to entertain you all through the season and we'll be joined by our good friend Emily of the Eerie for some in-depth analysis from the perspective of book readers. So we hope you'll tune in and follow Radio Westeros on Twitter for the latest updates. And now it's time for us to take a moment to thank our patrons. And so, many thanks to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Chris B., The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, John Wagarian, and welcome to Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Thanks so much to all our patrons, and if you want to be a patron of the show, 
earn shoutouts, listen to episodes up to a week before public release, and gain access to our patron-exclusive content, find us on patreon.com slash radiowesteros. And now it's time to get started with Blackwater Part 2. Beyond the mudgate and the desolation that had once been the fish market and wharves, the river itself seemed to have taken fire. Half of Stannis's fleet was ablaze along with most of Joffrey's. The kiss of wildfire turned proud ships into funeral pyres and men into living torches. The air was full of smoke and arrows and screams. Downstream, commoners and highborn captains alike could see the hot green death swirling toward their rafts and carracks and ferries, borne on the current of the black water. The long white oars of the mirish galleys flashed like the legs of maddened centipedes as they fought to come about, but it was no good. The centipedes had no place to run. A dozen great fires raged under the city walls where casks of burning pitch had exploded, but the wildfire reduced them to no more than candles in a burning house, their orange and scarlet pennons fluttering insignificantly against the jade holocaust. The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green. Eerily beautiful, a terrible beauty, like dragon fire. In our previous episode, we followed Sir Davos Seaworth as he sailed on the starboard wing of Stannis's fleet under the naval command of Sir Imri Florent. Line by line, we analysed Davos's third POV chapter of A Clash of Kings as he crashed over the white caps of Blackwater Bay, past the freshly built winch towers which had suspiciously sprouted up on either side of the river mouth, and then onwards into the river known as the Blackwater Rush, or more simply, the Blackwater. With so much action, it's sometimes difficult to understand what's happening and where when you're reading these chapters. For those of you listening at home, if you have the official Lands of Ice and Fire maps, now would be the perfect time to dust it off and unfold the map of King's Landing. For those of you who are unable to look at the map, let us give you a description of the environs and orientation in a brief recap. As Davos passed the winch towers containing either end of Tyrion Lannister's great boom chain, to his right loomed the red keep atop Aegon's high hill, where the descending cliff face was sheer enough to deter any landing from the attackers. Further into the mouth of the river, past the hill though, Davos would have seen King's Landing come into view, protected by its stone walls. The south face of the walls run almost parallel to the north bank of the river itself, and under Tyrion's orders, Bronn had cleared out all of the ramshackle structures built in the area between the river and the city in order to make the task of scaling the walls more difficult. Stannis Baratheon's fleet as a whole had three broad objectives. One, to land troops on the north bank under the city's southern wall and begin the assault. Two, to peel off to the port side, or south bank, and ferry the contingent of troops with Stannis who were waiting to be transported across the river to engage in battle. And three, to rejoin the naval assault against Joffrey's fleet when the deployment tasks were complete. On the riverside of the city, there are two gates we should focus on. 
The River Gate, commonly known as the Mud Gate to inhabitants of King's Landing, is situated more or less in the centre of the city's long southern wall, whereas the King's Gate lies on the southwest corner beside the tourney grounds. Given that most of Stannis's army are camped out on the southern bank of the Blackwater Rush, the Mudgate and the Kingsgate are the two closest, and therefore most vulnerable, of the city's seven gates. Of note, the Antlermen had planned to open the northwestern Gate of the Gods to Stannis, but given that that one is so far from the river, one can only assume they thought it would be more lightly guarded and meant it to be opened to a small group who would then seek to open the two southern gates from within the city. Alas, the Antlermen's plans were foiled by Varys, and they remained Joffrey's captives as the battle commenced. Of the Mudgate and Kingsgate, it was the former that was the most natural target. Stannis's troops had marched up from Storm's End along the King's Road, which arrives at the city directly opposite the Mudgate. So this was the focal point of the attack. With superior naval numbers at around a four-to-one ratio, Imri Florence sought to overwhelm Joffrey's relatively modest fleet and land enough of the upwards of four to 5,000 men-at-arms transported by the ships to clear out any defensive troops beneath the wall, while the flagship Fury, boasting a deck full of scorpions and catapults, aimed fire at the parapets. In theory, this ranged attack from Fury would have softened the defenses above the Mudgate, aiding and protecting the troops below, and perhaps cultivating the right circumstances to ram down the gate. However, this plan did not come into fruition. First of all, Fury's siege weapons were kept out of range as Tyrion ordered Joffrey's fleet to meet the opposition, purposefully creating chaotic gridlock, while the defensive siege weapons maintained range over much of Stannis's fleet, pelting the scrum indiscriminately with stones and boulders. When Stannis's fleet saved the contingent of 25 Lysini vessels led by Salador San camped out in the bay, sailed past the winch towers, there were at that moment around 225 vessels in total, 175 for Stannis and 50-odd for Joffrey, crammed into that river, not including the, quote, swarm of small boats bearing down river, a confusion of ferries and wherries, barges, skiffs, rowboats and hulks, or the selection of ships that Tyrion had already sunk down to the riverbed along the quays outside the Mudgate to create yet more havoc and further impede the attackers. The scrum that formed would have been of truly epic proportions, and one can only imagine Tyrion's delight and Stannis' dismay at seeing the wildfire explosion successfully turn the river into, quote, a jade holocaust, devastating Stannis' starboard flank, destroying fury, and doing much more damage besides. By then, the boom chain had been pulled taut between the winch towers, with the flow of the river pushing the burning vessels toward the chain to entrap them further. As the green flames spread over the water, there was no way back for much of Stannis's fleet, and we lose Davos's point of view as he is dragged by the current towards the chain, clinging for his life to a piece of wreckage. The final words and his final point of view in A Clash of Kings set the tone for the rest of the battle chapters. 
the mouth of the Blackwater Rush had turned into the mouth of hell. And so we'll pick up the action in the next chapter, Tyrion 13 of A Clash of Kings, as he surveys the damage done by the wildfire. The chapter begins with Tyrion kneeling on top of a merlon on the city wall battlements, somewhere above the mud gate. His short stature prevents him from seeing the full picture from behind the crenellations, so he's perched atop the wall to gain a good vantage point over the mayhem his wildfire plot has caused, and the scene brings to mind Varys' statement that a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Tyrion is using his sharp mind to wage this war, not his body, for the time being at least. Tyrion looks down at the hot green death turning men into human torches, and under the low reflecting clouds the scene looks, quote, eerily beautiful to him. He wonders if Aegon the Conqueror had found the same terrible beauty at the Field of Fire, and at this moment Tyrion must have felt tremendous power. Remember that, as a dwarf, he'd always felt like an outcast, even within his own privileged family. His arc through A Clash of Kings is so far an ascension. As acting hand and de facto military commander, Tyrion is reaching the peak of his potential and influence here at the Blackwater. After a lifetime of being overlooked, here is his chance to prove himself to all of those who had doubted him and frowned upon him, from the King's Landing hoi polloi deriding him as a demon monkey, to his sibling rival Cersei, and ultimately to his callous father Tywin, whose approval Tyrion craves. This is Tyrion's moment, and as his two-part wildfire boom chain plot comes into fruition, so far so good. But still the battle is not yet won. It's but half a victory in Tyrion's estimation. As his crimson cloak flaps in the hot wind, Tyrion shows only a fleeting remorse as the widespread devastation turns the river into a furnace, in spite of the fact that he'd sacrificed many of his own troops to achieve the maximum effect. Instead, he watches hundreds of men, quote, drowning or burning or doing a little of both, and portions half the blame to Stannis as he contemplates his reaction. Without a POV on Stannis, we're left to imagine him seething helplessly on the south bank, and perhaps after the initial shock, attempting to marshal his traumatised troops to prepare to cross the river by whatever vessels remained. Tyrion notes both the fact that Stannis leads from the rear and the intricate details of his crown. Given Stannis is oblivious to the boom chain, or at least to Tyrion's plans for it, we are reminded that Tyrion knows much more about Stannis than Stannis knows about Tyrion. Having no history as a commander, coupled with superior intel, gives Tyrion the edge that facilitated the wildfire surprise, and there's an unspoken irony that Stannis' bespoke crown features twisting flames. The Red God is doing Stannis no favours here, and a penny for Melisandre's thoughts stuck back on Dragonstone. From the battlements, Tyrion witnesses another wildfire explosion, a moment first noted by Davos when he's struggling in the water and thinks, another hulk heavy with wildfire went up behind him. 
Here in Tyrion's point of view, the explosion is described as a fountain of burning jade rose from the river, the blast so bright he had to shield his eyes. Plumes of fire thirty and forty feet high danced upon the waters, crackling and hissing. In spite of the massive damage done to Stannis's fleet, Joffrey is deeply disappointed by the loss of his own ships. His petulant complaint about my ships reminds us of Sir Imri Florent describing the royal fleet as the boy's toys and also serves to emphasise that even within his own family, Tyrion had to keep his plans close to his chest as other Lannisters would not have been so keen to sacrifice the bulk of the royal fleet to collateral damage. Tyrion's tactics were unconventional, outside the box, and came at some cost. Aside from the destruction of his own ships, which he justified with his opinion that they were doomed anyway, the boom chain had required steel that Cersei had commanded to be set aside for armour and hand-to-hand weapons, and so it was critical that the scheme paid off. Fortunately for Tyrion, the chain does its work of preventing a retreat, and he thinks about how it was employed. When Fury passed the threshold into the Blackwater Rush, Bronn whipped oxen to pull the chain, and the winch system within the towers turned to pull the line up above the water. We're left to wonder what would have happened if Stannis and his troops had perceived the use to which the newly built winch tower on the south bank would be put and destroyed it, and whether we should view that as a damning failure on his part. Regardless, the fact remains that in spite of the carnage on the river, Stannis's fleet continued to transport enough troops to cause Tyrion grave concern, remembering that there were fewer than 8,000 men to defend the city, many of whom were inexperienced or plain unreliable. With the wildfire not spreading as evenly as Tyrion had hoped, at least eight ships landed under the city walls, and even if a number were partially wrecked, they were still functioning as ferries. While the starboard wing of the formation, where Davos was situated, was largely destroyed by the wildfire and trebuchets, the port side, closer to the south bank, had avoided much of the carnage, and some vessels had raced ahead upstream of the inferno, including a contingent of Mirish galleys. As the shock of the moment buys him small time to think and organize, Tyrion estimates that Stannis is left with around 40 galleys out of the 175-ish, a slim number perhaps, but enough to eventually take Stannis's entire division across the water to launch its full-scale attack. And Tyrion's first post-wildfire decision is to deal with the troops attacking the north bank outside the Mud Gate. He sends word to the competent commander of the City Watch and captain of the gate, Jacelyn Bywater, to prepare a sortie, and arranges for Sir Arnold, the commander of the three enormous trebuchets positioned behind the gate, named the whores by the gold cloaks, due to the hope they would, quote, be giving Lord Stannis such a lusty welcome to move their aim degrees west instead of continuing to barrage the ships already defeated in the river. Tyrion needs to organise with haste because he understands keeping momentum is critical. If he can maintain an advantage and stay one step ahead, his men in the city are more likely to remain loyal. But without their loyalty, 
the city would fall. One other person Tyrion has to keep satisfied is Joffrey. As much as he despises his nephew, the boy is the figurehead of Lannister rule, and so Tyrion shows genuine concern for his safety and endeavors to protect him at all costs. He allows Joffrey control of the trebuchets, given they are within the city, and if ever there was a time that the prince's sadism could be put to good use, it's now. Joffrey has the treasonous antlermen tied up naked with stag antlers nailed to their heads and plans to send them flying over the city walls. We'll keep our eyes peeled for that. No sooner had Tyrion issued orders intended to dampen the threat around the mud gate than a messenger, quote, came panting up the steps and threw himself to one knee. They've landed men on the tourney grounds, hundreds. They're bringing a ram up to the King's Gate. As we said, the King's Gate is on the southwest corner of the city, some way away from the mud gate, and the left side of Stannis's fleet had escaped beyond the wildfire and continued upstream. Some of these ships had gone to the south bank to Stannis, while others evidently made for the further end of the city. Whether this tactic was by design, if Stannis had any input, it's really difficult to say, but the result is that King's Landing is now being attacked at a relatively light-guarded gate, well outside the range of the trebuchets and other defensive siege units. They galloped off down River Row, Pod and Sir Mandon coming hard behind him. The shuttered houses were steeped in green shadow, but there was no traffic to get in their way. Tyrion had commanded that the street be kept clear so the defenders could move quickly from one gate to the next. Even so, by the time they reached the King's Gate, he could hear a booming crash of wood on wood that told him the battering ram had been brought into play. The groaning of the great hinges sounded like the moans of a dying giant. The gatehouse square was littered with the wounded, but he saw lines of horses as well. Not all of them hurt, and sell swords and gold cloaks enough to form a strong column. Form up! He shouted as he leapt to the ground. The gate moved under the impact of another blow. Who commands here? You're going out! When Tyrion orders the gold cloaks and sell swords to form up and prepare to engage the men viciously ramming at the king's gate, it's Sander Clegane, last seen before the wildfire explosion, fearlessly riding up the planks and taking the fight to Stannis's landed vessels, who answers. No, he says, and bugger that, and you. Although it transpires that the column had been out three times already and suffered great losses, the reader knows enough of Clegane's backstory to conclude it wasn't the blood and gore that bothered him so much as the fire, remembering that Sandor must have been as surprised as the attackers when the Green Inferno went up. Tyrion is shocked that Clegane is, for once, apparently afraid, and that his suggestion is to let the attackers in and kill them within the walls. This moment is a huge one for Tyrion's character. He faces dissent from the unlikeliest of sources, and remembering that loyalty is paramount, Clegane puts him in the most precarious of positions. The outcome of the Battle of Blackwater may rest upon Tyrion's ability to respond to this challenge to his authority. Hearing the ominous sound of wood smashing against wood, Tyrion knows his search for a sortie leader must be concluded as swiftly as possible. 
He thinks, I need to find someone else, but who? Sir Mandon? He looked at the men and knew it would not do. Clegane's fear had shaken them. Without a leader, they would refuse as well. And Sir Mandon, a dangerous man, Jamie said, yes, but not a man other men would follow. We mentioned that Tyrion's tactics thus far could be considered outside the box, and now, with no natural candidates for leadership, his next roll of the dice is wholly unexpected. Tyrion Lannister, derided as the imp, the demon monkey, the ugly dwarf, decides to lead the sortie himself. And the reaction from the onlookers is entirely predictable. It says, Clegane only laughed. You? Tyrion could see the disbelief on their faces. But Tyrion ignores the slight, like a true leader, and instead prepares for the attack. His big red stallion wore crinet and chamfron. Crimson silk draped his hindquarters over a coat of mail. The high saddle was gilded. Podrick Payne handed up helm and shield, heavy oak emblazoned with a golden hand on red, surrounded by small golden lions. He walked his horse in a circle, looking at the little force of men. Only a handful had responded to his command, no more than twenty. They sat their horses with eyes as white as the hounds. He looked contemptuously at the others, the knights and sellswords who had ridden with Clegane. They say I'm half a man. What does that make the lot of you? And so Tyrion traps his doubters in a web of their own logic. They no doubt disapprove of him as a warrior, yet he's acting more bravely than they are. In leading by example, Tyrion is shaming the beleaguered troops into action. And it works. Soon the column is forming up, quickly doubling in size, and at last he's ready to take on the enemy at the gate. At the end of the chapter, his final act before heading out through the sally port is to give a succinct but rousing speech, the mark of an inspiring commander. It says, You won't hear me shout out Joffrey's name, he told them. You won't hear me yell for Casterly Rock, either. This is your city Stannis means to sack, and that's your gate he's bringing down. So come with me and kill the son of a bitch. Tyrion unsheathed his axe, wheeled the stallion around, and trotted toward the sally port. He thought they were following, but never dared to look. In the meantime, Cersei remains barricaded, along with all the high-born women of the city, in the Queen's Ballroom of Maegor's Holdfast, the fortress within the fortress at the heart of the Red Keep. Guarded by Sir Illyn Payne, who's been ordered to kill Cersei and Sansa, and possibly others, to prevent them falling into Stannis' hands in the event of a Lannister defeat, and a coterie of Lannister guardsmen who Sansa Stark recognises as sellswords, they are frequently visited by the Kettle Black brothers, who seem to be taking the opportunity of acting as Joffrey's personal guards and Cersei's source of information to avoid participating in the actual battle. It's Osfrid who brings the news that some of Stannis's archers had landed on the riverbank, only to be cut down by Sander Clegane, and that Jacelyn Bywater was dealing with rioting in Flea Bottom. Sometime later, his brother Osney brings news that the wildfire had ignited the ships and that the whole Blackwater's awash with wildfire. 
Both also take pains to reassure the queen that Joffrey is safe, praising him for his bravery and encouragement of the men, in other words, really laying it on thickly for their benefactor's benefit. Osfred also brings the news that a groom and two maidservants have been caught trying to sneak out to Poston Gate with three of the royal horses. Cersei coldly deems them traitors and orders Sir Illyn to take their heads and mount them above the stables as a warning. Thinking she is educating Sansa, she opines, The only way to keep your people loyal is to make certain they fear you more than they do the enemy. While Sansa outwardly agrees, she reflects that she had always been taught the opposite and thinks, If I am ever queen, I'll make them love me. After seeing to the execution of the three servants, Osney returns to tell Cersei that a group of wealthy merchants is seeking entry into the castle, illustrating where Joffrey got his keen sense of diplomacy and mirroring what Joffrey claimed to Sansa was his response to citizens seeking bread outside the Red Keep prior to the riots. Cersei says, Command them to return to their homes. If they won't go, have our crossbowmen kill a few. Sometime later, presumably having dealt with the presumptuous merchants, Osney returns with more news. Stannis has landed men on the tourney grounds and there's more coming across, the mudgates under attack, and they've brought a ram to the king's gate. The imp's gone out to drive them off, the king's with my brother at the whores, flinging antlermen into the river. It's at this point that Cersei decides to have Joffrey brought back to the Red Keep in spite of Tyrion's orders that he remain at the walls. As we'll see, this will be a turning point in the morale of the defenders. And now, let's move into the events of Tyrion 14 of A Clash of Kings. The first line begins, The slot in his helm limited Tyrion's vision to what was before him, reminding us in no uncertain terms that Tyrion is currently wearing his helm, and coupled with his earlier anxiety regarding Joffrey taking off his helm, we can wonder why attention is given to this detail. More on that later. Tyrion heads out at the point of a wedge formation, which brings to mind his earlier thought that Stannis never had his brother Robert's thirst for battle and would lead from the rear. The acting hand bravely rides forth with Mandon Moore to his right, and, in spite of Tyrion's objections to his youth and inexperience, his squire Podrick Payne to his left. Now outside the walls, the wedge follows the ramparts towards the King's Gate, Ahead of them is a, quote, surging mob of soldiers wrestling with a huge ram, a shaft of black oak with an iron head. The rammers are being protected by a group of archers, and Tyrion's plan is to speed the wedge's horses to a canter in order to surprise their foe before the archers can take aim. And as the sortie engages the opposition, Tyrion lifts his axe and cries King's Landing instead of Casterly Rock. This is a pertinent detail because it reflects the fact that at this moment Tyrion is not acting solely for his familial interests. By distancing himself from his family, he frames himself as a citizen of King's Landing foremost, behaving as the saviour of the city. Tyrion's arc is reaching its heroic climax as his men crash into the enemies beneath the king's gate. After witnessing Mandon Moore skewer an opponent clean off the ground with the point of Joffrey's banner, 
Tyrion himself scores his first kill when he smashes his axe through an unguarded Florence skull. From horseback, the sortie also targets the surrounding archers struggling to maintain the distance needed to find range, and Tyrion rides down one of them before he, quote, opens a spearman from shoulder to armpit and glances a blow off a swordfish-crested helm. When he hears the battering ram drop into the mud, he knows the immediate threat is over. But he doesn't stop there. He watches Mandon Moore, clearly a force to be reckoned with, slice his way through the attackers as Stannis's men begin to flee. Still, Tyrion is not satisfied. He spurred his horse back into motion, trotting over and around a scatter of corpses. Downriver, the black water was jammed with the hulks of burning galleys. Patches of wildfire still floated atop the water, sending fiery green plumes swirling twenty feet into the air. They had dispersed the men on the battering ram, but he could see fighting all along the riverfront. Sir Balon Swan's men, most like, or Lancel's, trying to throw the enemy back into the water as they swarmed ashore off the burning ships. We'll ride for the Mudgate! To give an idea of the timeline, Davos was noted to be heading through Blackwater Bay in the late afternoon, and as Tyrion leads his men at the King's Gate, the sky is described as darkening. The battle has been raging for a mere handful of hours, and after the early evening wildfire display, nighttime is approaching as Tyrion and his men head back to the Mudgate to continue the fight. With Tyrion's troops chanting, Half-man, half-man, in support of him, he wonders who taught them that name. Of course, the term derives from the Stormcrows of the Vale, who he brought to King's Landing, another faction that initially underestimated him. Tyrion has successfully turned a perceived weakness into a strength, defying unlikely odds by stepping into Sandor Clegane's boots, and as he rides east along the north bank, adrenaline pumping and men calling out to him, his self-confidence must be at an all-time high. But clearing the Mudgate will certainly not be as straightforward as the King's Gate. With the effects of the wildfire still being felt and with barrels of burning pitch having been thrown into the mix, the fire rages on amidst chaotic hand-to-hand combat. Stones are crashing down from who knows where, Tyrion's wedge has disintegrated, and in spite of a handful of men still following him, Podrick Payne is notably no longer by his side. At this stage, some of Stannis's men are still crawling out of the river, and Tyrion doesn't hesitate in putting them out of their misery. The killing stirs a bloodlust in him. It says, Knights twice his size fled from him, or stood and died. They seemed little things and fearful. Lannister, he shouted, slaying. His arm was red to the elbow, glistening in the light off the river. When his horse reared again, he shook his axe at the stars and heard them call out, Half-man, half-man. Tyrion felt drunk. His mind goes to his brother Jamie, who had discussed this sensation with him previously. Tyrion is experiencing the bloody glory of battle fever for himself. He chops off a spearman's arm before his destrier kicks an archer. 
By now, Tyrion is feeling nigh on invincible, laughing maniacally about the failed attempts on his life, more powerful than ever before. Although we've highlighted the obvious contrast in leadership with Stannis, we wonder what another famed commander who leads from the safety of the rear, his father Tywin, would think of his son's exploits on the battlefield here. We all know Tywin frowned upon Tyrion and proudly favored his martial son Jaime, but in this moment, Tyrion is being as brave, inspiring, and effective as any Lannister could be. When the battle's done, will he get the recognition he deserves? Yes, stay tuned to find out. But despite the horror all around him, Tyrion is relentless. A cowering man begs to yield and offers his own cut-off hand as a tribute, but Tyrion rides away and buries his axe in the neck of a man-at-arms. Through the thick smoke, he sees Balon Swan splattered with blood and brain and bone. As their eyes meet, the Kingsguard tells Tyrion to look behind him across the burning Blackwater. And then he sees it. Steel-clad men-at-arms were clambering off a broken galley that had smashed into a pier. So many, where are they coming from? Squinting into the smoke and glare, Tyrion followed them back out onto the river. Twenty galleys were jammed together out there, maybe more. It was hard to count. Their oars were crossed, their hulls locked together with grappling lines. They were impaled on each other's rams, tangled in webs of fallen rigging. One great hulk floated hull up between two smaller ships wrecks, but packed so closely that it was possible to leap from one deck to the other and so cross the Blackwater. Even though the threat to the King's Gate had been laid to rest for the time being, and the battle against the shell-shocked and weary soldiers beneath the Mudgate seemed to be going well enough, as we said at the end of the last episode... If Stannis only had a bridge to move his much larger host across the river, the tide of war would surely turn against the thinly defended city. The last thing in the world Tyrion wants to see is a pathway forming across the Blackwater made of all those damaged and entangled vessels. But that's exactly what's happening. It says, we made them a bloody bridge, he thought in dismay. And so George takes us from Tyrion's confident slaughter to advantage Stannis in a heartbeat, and that shift immediately heightens the tension and drama. The fact that hundreds of Stannis's men are scrambling over the rickety structure that could come apart at any time makes us wholly uncertain which way this war is going to go, and so the author has us in the palm of his hand. Tyrion's response is again to lead the charge without fear or hesitation. He tells Balon Swan, Those are brave men. Let's go kill them. And Mandon Moore once again falls in with them. But not everything will go Tyrion's way. George himself said about Tyrion's fortunes in 2012, Well, you don't want to make it too easy for the characters. If the character just goes from success to success, then you don't have much of a story now, do you? So, if Tyrion's peak came moments earlier when he was slaying the enemy to a chorus of half-man, half-man, then perhaps the only way from there is down. 
Tyrion's descent begins when he approaches the bridge of ships and his destrier slips and breaks its leg. After picking himself up and euthanizing his screaming horse by cutting its throat, Tyrion ventures across the bridge of ships, and he's slashing at the onrushing soldiers with everything he's got. It says, some he killed, some he wounded, and some went away, but always there were more. By now, Tyrion's kill count must be sky high, but he's more vulnerable off his stallion, and so he fights on in the shadows of the two Kingsguard who gracefully fend off a circle of Valerian spearmen. Tyrion takes an arrow to the shoulder but barely notices, and then a naked man crashes down from the sky. This is one of the antlermen we know Joffrey was so excited about launching over the city walls, and so when the man bursts like a melon in front of Tyrion, it not only ties the action together, but allows us to sync this chapter with the events playing out in the Queen's ballroom. Joffrey is still at the trebuchets, so Cersei has yet to call him back to the Red Keep. With bodies and stones raining down from above, the bridge of ships twists violently and Tyrion is knocked aside. He falls into the river but manages to keep his head out of the water by clasping at the deck of a ruined vessel. And it's now that Tyrion takes off his helm because if he doesn't, he's simply going to drown. It says, Suddenly the river was pouring into his helm. He ripped it off and crawled along the listing deck until the water was only neck deep. Once again, folks, pay attention to that helm, or lack thereof. As the water rushes over Tyrion, we get this. A groaning filled the air like the death cries of some enormous beast. The ship, he had time to think, the ships about to tear loose. The broken galleys were ripping apart, the bridge breaking apart. No sooner had he come to that realization than he heard a sudden crack, loud as thunder. The deck lurched beneath him, and he slid back down into the water. Fortunately, Tyrion manages to grab a rope, perhaps attached to the ship's furled sails. The vessel is sinking quickly, so it's tilted diagonally, and it's all Tyrion can do to drag himself up inch by inch. From the corner of his eye, he witnesses men of both sides jumping into the river amid raging fires, and as he watches, the spinning deck he's on disorients him. Then he sees this. A raging battle, a great confusion of bright banners waving above a sea of struggling men, shield walls forming and breaking, mounted knights cutting through the press, dust and mud and blood and smoke. On the other side, the Red Keep loomed high on its hill, spitting fire. They were on the wrong sides, though. For a moment, Tyrion thought he was going mad, that Stannis and the castle had traded places. How could Stannis cross to the North Bank? Battle? What battle? If Stannis hasn't crossed, who is he fighting? Unbeknownst to Tyrion, Lords Mace Tyrell and Tywin Lannister have arrived at the battle after hammering out a mutually beneficial agreement. Their combined troops were transported by barges down the Blackwater from Tumblr's Falls. Disembarking half a day's march from the city, they are now entering the fray. 
the Tyrell army, some 50,000 men, marched along the south bank, swinging around and joining the King's Road in such a way that it appeared they had just arrived from the Rose Road. The three-pronged force, led by Mace Tyrell, Randall Tarley, and a mysterious soldier in bespoke green armor at the head of the vanguard, engaged with Stannis's army, coming upon them from the rear, which is the battle Tyrion witnesses. In coordination, Tywin made his way along the north bank to surprise Stannis's forces still battling under the kings and mudgates. With the bridge of ships broken apart and Stannis's forces still separated on either side of the river, this latest development signifies the beginning of the end for Stannis's campaign. However, in spite of this unexpected boost to Tyrion's cause, which he cannot grasp the meaning of, though he's seeing it unfold, the man himself is at his most vulnerable. If the Rakizon continues to break loose, it will be pulled downstream towards the wall of fire he created. As a voice calls out his name, his sinking ship slams into the adjacent galley and he is almost knocked back into the water. After all of his exploits, Tyrion is thoroughly exhausted and so when Mandon Moore appears offering his hand, he must think his prayers have been answered. But no sooner does Tyrion realise something's amiss, Mandon is reaching out with his left hand instead of his right, then the king's guard slashes his sword right across Tyrion's face. It says, The point slashed just beneath his eyes, and he felt its cold hard touch and then a blaze of pain. His head spun around as if he'd been slapped. The shock of the cold water was a second slap, more jolting than the first. He flailed for something to grab onto, knowing that once he went down, he was not like to come back up. Somehow his hand found the splintered end of a broken oar. Clutching it tight as a desperate lover, he shinnied up foot by foot. His eyes were full of water, his mouth was full of blood, and his head throbbed horribly. Gods, give me strength to reach the deck. And so, from out of nowhere, Mandon Moore, in a gross betrayal, attempts to assassinate the man he should be protecting. Tyrion, having just previously taken off his helm to avoid drowning in it, becomes a pertinent detail, as it left his head unguarded for more to slash at. And as we'll see in the aftermath segment, when the battle is done, Tywin makes scathing comments about its removal. Despite not making the kill, Moore has maimed Tyrion, and we'll later learn he's taken off his nose. Having somehow climbed out of the water, Tyrion rolls over, helpless as a turtle on its back. The orange and green flames overhead look beautiful against the night sky, but moments later, a shadow comes into view, and Mandon Moore is back, looming over him with a sword in hand. Throughout the chapter, Tyrion has been an active character, fighting and slashing and killing anyone in his path. Yet now, he's about to be on the receiving end, and he believes all is lost. Sir Mandon put the point of his sword to the hollow of his throat and curled both hands around the hilt. And suddenly, he lurched to the left, staggering into the rail. Wood split, and Sir Mandon Moore vanished with a shout and a splash. An instant later, the hulls came slamming together again, so hard the deck seemed to jump. 
Then someone was kneeling over him. Jamie? He croaked, almost choking on the blood that filled his mouth. Who else would save him, if not his brother? Be still, my lord. You're hurt bad. A boy's voice. That makes no sense, thought Tyrion. It sounded almost like Pop. The young squire Podrick Payne coming to Tyrion's rescue is a great twist, and we'll talk about Mandon Moore's motives for this betrayal later on. We think it's perfectly in keeping with George's search for realism, keeping in mind his assertion that he doesn't like to make things too easy for his main characters, that in spite of his survival, Tyrion pays a heavy price on the Blackwater. And we'll do some post-battle analysis on that theme in a later segment. With the acting hand and de facto commander now seriously wounded and missing for the time being, our point of view for the defenders shifts to Sansa Stark in the Queen's ballroom. Lancel Lannister had earned his own command by bringing Tyrion information on Cersei's actions, something he was blackmailed into when Tyrion discovered his illicit relationship with the Queen. He had been outside the mudgates, along with Balon Swan, attempting to repulse Stannis' men crossing the Bridge of Ships, and it is he who brings news to the ballroom that the battle is lost. When a dissociated and possibly drunk Cersei directs him to talk to Tyrion, the bloody knight delivers more news. Your brother's likely dead. He was on the bridge of boats when it broke apart, we think. Sir Mandon's likely gone as well, and no one can find the hound. Gods be damned, Cersei. Why did you have them fetch Joffrey back to the castle? The gold cloaks are throwing down their spears and running, hundreds of them. When they saw the king leaving, they lost all heart. The whole Blackwater's awash with wrecks and fire and corpses. And now we come back to the impact of Cersei's earlier decision to have Joffrey brought back to the Red Keep. Bronn will later tell Tyrion that when the Kettleblacks took Joffrey away from the Wall, many of them decided they would leave as well. Then their commander, Lord Jacelyn Bywater, attempted to turn the tide. Ironhand put himself in their path and tried to order them back to the walls. They say Bywater was blistering them good and almost had him ready to turn when someone put an arrow through his neck. He didn't seem so fearsome then, so they dragged him off his horse and killed him. Back in the ballroom, Osney Kettleblack adds to Lancel's news. There's fighting on both sides of the river now, Your Grace. It may be that some of Stannis's lords are fighting each other. No one's sure. It's all confused over there. The hound's gone. No one knows where. And Sir Balon's fallen back inside the city. The riverside's theirs. They're ramming at the king's gate again. And Sir Lancel's right. Your men are deserting the walls and killing their own officers. There's mobs at the iron gate and the gate of the gods fighting to get out and Fleabottom's one great drunken riot. So, as Tyrion had feared, the gold cloaks failed to hold out during an actual battle, though the blame for their loss of morale seems to lie at Cersei's feet. Not that she cares. She orders Joffrey brought inside Makors, our only hint that perhaps Sir Illyn's orders extended to him as well then delivers a fearsome blow to the wounded Lancel and departs the scene without a backward glance. 
It's left to Sansa to attempt to soothe the anxious crowd gathered and see that Lancel is brought to Maester Franken. But Dantos appears and tells Sansa to return to her own chamber and barricade herself inside. Arriving there, she goes to the window and gives us a bird's-eye view of the scene on the waterfront. The southern sky was a swirl with glowing, shifting colors, the reflections of the great fires that burned below. Baleful green tides moved against the bellies of the clouds and pools of orange light spread out across the heavens. The reds and yellows of common flame warred against the emeralds and jades of wildfire, each color flaring and then fading, birthing armies of short-lived shadows to die again an instant later. Green dawns gave way to orange dusks in half a heartbeat. The air itself smelled burnt, the way a soup kettle sometimes smelled if it was left on the fire too long and all the soup boiled away. Embers drifted through the night air like swarms of fireflies. Throughout the night that followed, we have no point of view of the actual battle, and most of our information must be filled in from accounts in the aftermath. We know that very soon, Tywin will meet Stannis' men on the north bank as the battle rages from dawn to dusk. But on the south bank, a separate battle continues, the one witnessed by a confused Tyrion Lannister from the Bridge of Ships, so let's consider what's happening there. One important point to consider is that Stannis' most loyal men, those who supported him from the outset, were transported from Storm's End by ship to be delivered to the North Bank. Many of them were killed by wildfire or have now been slain, and those still alive are about to face a fresh legion commanded by the experienced Tywin Lannister. Stannis himself being on the south bank, is separated from his loyal men, remembering that most of the troops who marched or rode up from Storm's End with him were Renly's men to begin with. Significantly, men of questionable loyalty, as the fiercely loyal to Renly, Sir Courtney Penrose had pointed out. So, let's put ourselves in the boots of a soldier formerly loyal to Renly on the south bank. You've camped and waited for the action to begin, and seen Stannis' fleet sailing across Blackwater Bay behind schedule. When the fleet finally arrives, there's an unexpected and horrendous wildfire explosion that sets the river on fire. You witnessed fellow soldiers screaming as they're roasted alive, others drowning in their armor, and see stones turn men into pulp. You're shell-shocked and have tasted the unimaginable horrors of war up close. Notably, many of the rank and file will be the very men Catelyn Stark characterized as knights of summer, mere boys playing at war. Your ride across the river never arrives, and your only way across is a bridge of ships that is liable to break apart and spin downriver into a wall of flame. Then, from out of nowhere, you hear the sound of war horns blaring behind you. You're about to be attacked with your back to the river, and you don't even know by whom. You see a vanguard rushing towards you through the darkness and smoke. For reasons unbeknownst to you, their armour is an unusual ghostly grey. And leading the vanguard is a figure in armour well known to you. 
How could this be happening? Could it be? Yes, that's Renly. Nobody saw the body, and so this is why. My king lives. A ghost is riding. The appearance of Renly's ghost is a fantastic part of the Battle of Blackwater, and it's a shame we don't have a point of view on him, but we do later hear about his exploits from various sources. It's Dantos Hollard who informs us that Renly and his men were covered in ash, having marched through a landscape that had been burned, first by Tyrion's mountain clansmen, and later by Stannis himself, which gave them their ghostly grey look and added to the eeriness of the moment. And we learn from Loras Tyrell in a Jamie chapter that the ruse was suggested by Littlefinger, and that the ghost was really his brother Garland. And more on that later, but in the here and now, Dontos will tell Sansa, The vanguard won the fight. They plunged through Stannis like a lance through a pumpkin, every man of them howling like some demon in steel. Considering that the Tyrell army came upon Stannis from behind, Dontos's characterization of a lance through pumpkin seems particularly apt given their victory was achieved by defeating the commander of Stannis's vanguard, positioned on the far side of Stannis's army, drawn up against the south bank of the river. And with Renly leading the vanguard of the Reach, we think it's particularly significant that he faces and then slays Sir Guyard Morrigan, commander of Stannis's vanguard. Guyard the Green was a member of Renly's Rainbow Guard until his king's death, at which point he joined Stannis's cause and was given command of the vanguard. Sansa is aware of him days before the battle when Stannis' army begins to arrive on the south bank. It says, His vanguard had appeared two nights ago during the black of the moon. King's Landing had woken to the sight of their tents and banners. They were 5,000, Sansa had heard, near as many as all the gold cloaks in the city. They flew the red or green apples of House Fossaway, the turtle of Estremond, and the fox and flowers of Florent. And their commander was Sir Guyard Morrigan, a famous southern knight, who men now called Guyard the Green. His standard showed a crow in flight, its black wings spread wide across a storm-green sky. But it was the pale yellow banners that worried the city. Long, ragged tails streamed behind them like flickering flames, and in place of a lord's sigil, they bore the device of a god, the burning heart of the Lord of Light. Sansa is unaware of the significance of Sir Guyard's new nickname, but the men in the army of the Reach who were once sworn to Renly most certainly were not, and they very well could have seen some mystical significance in the Green Knight killing his former sworn sword. While Littlefinger's initial plan was to, quote, frighten Stannis's ignorant men-at-arms, the ploy was so effective it actually made many of them switch sides back to Renly, and surely the death of Morrigan was symbolic here. As Bronn later informs Tyrion, From the winch towers, all we saw was banners in the mud and men throwing down their spears to run. But there's hundreds in the pot shops and brothels who tell you how they saw Lord Renly kill this one or that one. Most of Stannis' host had been Renly's to start, and they went right back over at the sight of him in that shiny green armour. 
Ranley's ghost created a confusion that allowed Garland's vanguard to be extremely efficient, and with Mace Tyrell and Randall Tarley bringing in their divisions behind, Stannis found himself in deep trouble. In spite of this, the battles on the south and north banks continued for hours through the night, and it wasn't until close to dawn that the battle was concluded. Trapped against the river and with all lost, Stannis finally made his retreat. Salador's son had remained safe behind the fray as a naval rearguard, and Bronn will later also tell Tyrion, His Lysini kept their galleys out in the bay, beyond your chain. When the battle turned bad, they put in along the bay shore and took off as many as they could. Men were killing each other to get aboard toward the end. We learn in a later Davos chapter that the bastard of Night Song, Roland Storm, had, quote, commanded the rearguard that allowed Stannis to reach the safety of Salador San's galleys. And then, in A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion gets another perspective from Cam of the Second Sons, who fought for Stannis at the Blackwater beside his brother Kennet, and informs Tyrion how thousands were left behind. Lord Tywin come up with Renly's ghost and took us in the flank. I dropped my spear and ran, but the ships this bloody knight said, where's your spear, boy? We got no room for cravens. And they buggered off and left me and thousands more besides. It will turn out that many of the men rescued by San's ships were men of House Florent, with many Stormlanders and Stannis' own bannermen from around Dragonstone being amongst those left behind, as we'll see in the next section. And with Stannis conceding defeat and running for his life, we return to the tail end of Sansa Seven in A Clash of Kings. It says, The first faint hint of dawn was visible in the east, and the Red Keep's own bells were ringing now, joining in the swelling river of sound that flowed from the seven crystal towers of the great sept of Baelor. They had rung the bells when King Robert died, she remembered, but this was different— no slow, dolorous death knell, but a joyful thunder. She could hear men shouting in the streets as well, and something that could only be cheers. The ringing of the bells, of course, denotes the end of the Battle of Blackwater, and as King's Landing celebrates, Stannis Baratheon heads back to Dragonstone with a considerably smaller army and navy than he began with. Although we should be calling this a decisive victory for Tyrion Lannister after everything he's achieved, the man himself remained unconscious for weeks afterwards. His leadership and heroic exploits, which brought King's Landing enough time to hold out until the relief force arrived, soon to be forgotten while the spoils of victory were distributed to other men. The battle itself was brilliantly written, thoroughly engrossing throughout, and as we readers catch our breaths, we're left to contemplate the aftermath. Later in the episode, we'll consider what the aftermath brought for people on both sides. But when we come back after this break, we'll briefly shift our focus to the matter of real-world influences and an enduring mystery from the battle. First, we'll finish here with Sir Dantos Hollard excitedly delivering news of the Defender's Salvation.
The city is saved. Lord Stannis is dead. Lord Stannis is fled. No one knows. No one cares. His host is broken. The danger's done. Slaughtered, scattered, or gone over, they say. Oh, the bright banners. They came up through the ashes while the river was burning. The river. Stannis was neck deep in the river, and they took him from the rear. Oh, to be a knight again, to have been part of it. His own men hardly fought, they say. Some ran, but more bent the knee and went over, shouting for Lord Renly. What must Stannis have thought when he heard that? They came up the Rose Road and along the river bank. Through all the fields Stannis had burned, the ashes puffing up around their boots and turning all their armor gray. But oh, the banners must have been bright. All the Westermen, all the power of Highgarden and Casterly Rock, the vanguard won the fight. They plunged through Stannis like a lance through a pumpkin, every man of them howling like some demon in steel. And do you know who led the vanguard? It was Lord Renly! Lord Renly in his green armor, with the fires shimmering off his golden antlers. Lord Renly, with his tall spear in his hand. Oh, it was Renly! It was Renly! It was Renly! Oh, the banners! Oh, to be a knight! Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and now it's time for us to take a moment to thank our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks to Arrowdo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Drew, James K, Lord Sosa, and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Then, bearing his shield, he ordered his warriors to advance all those who stood on the riverbank. Nor could that army go unto the other because of the water where the flood came flowing after the ebb tide. The watery stream separated them. The Battle of Malden. As promised, we're now going to turn our focus to a certain small mystery within the text, as well as some of the historical influences the author might have used in writing the battle. And we'll begin with history and the Battle of Malden, England's real-life Blackwater. The story comes down to us via a fragment of epic poetry known as the Battle of Malden, which is one of the oldest extant pieces of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Just 325 lines of the poem survive, and notably missing are the beginning and end. But taken with other historical evidence, it's enough to paint a picture of a battle from the late Anglo-Saxon or early medieval period, as centuries of the English fighting off invasions and incursions by Northmen careened towards the final and decisive decades of the era. Here's what we know. 
991 CE, during the reign of Ethelred II, it had become common practice for the English to pay off Norse and Danish invaders via a tax that was later referred to as the Danegeld. But not all of Ethelred's lords agreed with this policy, and so, when a huge army of Northmen, possibly led by the future King of Norway, sailed up a certain river in Essex, a local elderman called Birtnoth summoned his levies and prepared to meet the invaders with force at the river's edge. The name of the river? Blackwater. While this battle didn't feature fire, a boom chain or block ships, and there would be no miraculous rescue for the defenders, there are a number of similarities that could have lent influence to George as he was creating his Battle of the Blackwater, most notably the name of the river. While the real-life battle has come down to us known by the name of the nearest town, it was undeniably fought upon the banks of the River Blackwater. Additionally, the ratio of defenders to attackers may have been similar. Yeah, unlike in A Song of Ice and Fire, where military might is often judged by the tens of thousands, in the era of Anglo-Saxon warfare, armies numbering in the thousands were considered massive, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle notes that Olaf led somewhere between two and 4,000 men in an unspecified number of ships. On the other hand, according to some sources, Birtnop may have been grossly outnumbered, Additionally, the Anglo-Saxon army was comprised mostly of the feared, local farmers and villagers summoned to do service to their lord, while the attackers would have been seasoned warriors and raiders. Compare this with the defenders of King's Landing relying upon newly minted gold cloaks who are repeatedly noted to be nowhere near as effective as the seasoned knights, men-at-arms, and sellswords who would accompany Stannis. The next point of similarity is a convenient bridge that emerges amidst the battle to aid the attackers. At Maldon, it's noted that Olaf sailed his fleet upriver, where they disembarked at an island in the Blackwater estuary that was connected to the shore by a land bridge at low tide. Inexplicably, Bietnoff would allow his enemy to cross this bridge to meet his shield wall, waiting on the riverbank. At King's Landing, the infamous bridge of ships created by Tyrion's boom chain catching the wrecks of both Stannis's armada and the Royal Navy allowed Stannis's men to cross from the south bank of the Blackwater to continue their assault on the city walls. And back in Essex, as battle was joined on the riverbank, there would be a case of mistaken identity that led to the tide of battle changing in favour of the attacker. An English warrior called Godric when he saw the attackers had crossed the bridge, took flight from the field of battle. Perhaps no one would have noticed had he not treacherously mounted his lord Birthmoth's horse, recognizable by its trappings, in doing so. Many who might have stood firm and fought on, the hallmark of the Anglo-Saxon shield wall, perceived in the flight of Birthmoth's horse the flight of their leader, and men began to throw down their arms and flee, leading to the eventual collapse of the shield wall. Compare this with two events that occurred at King's Landing, Cersei ordering the removal of Joffrey from the walls where his presence had been a symbol for the overmatched city guardsmen defending the walls. Joffrey's departure led to watchmen throwing down their arms and abandoning their posts by the hundreds and eventually to the death of their commander, Lord Jacelyn Bywater. 
In the meantime, outside the walls, Tywin's relief force had arrived and in his vanguard was Sir Garland Tyrell, outfitted in Renly Baratheon's armour. The sight of what many of the men of the Stormlands and the Reach, now fighting for Stannis, took to be their recently deceased king fighting on the side of the Lannisters led to many of them defecting en masse to the opposing side. So, do we know for certain that George used the Battle of Maldon as an inspiration? Perhaps not, but we do know that he borrows liberally from history, medieval English history specifically, and often weaves compelling moments from a variety of events and sources together in order to create his own stories. As the Battle of Maldon is one of the oldest and most well-known historical poems written in the English language, it stands to reason that he might be aware of it and borrow a few of its more dramatic elements for his fiction. But we mentioned that the real-life battle had a notable lack of fire, block ships, and boom chains. For those inspirations, we must look elsewhere. The use of boom chains has been fairly common throughout history, often used defensively to prevent ships gaining access to a harbour or river. The same fairly simple mechanism appears during the Crusades in Egypt, on numerous occasions throughout the British Isles from the medieval era to the present day, across the Hudson River during the US War for Independence, and across the Mississippi River during the American Civil War. Most notably, perhaps, a massive iron boom was used to block the entrance of the Golden Horn, a natural inlet of the Bosphorus Strait that formed the northern border of the Byzantine city of Constantinople. It was here at Constantinople in the early 8th century CE that the use of a defensive boom chain met another of George's inspirations, Greek fire. As part of an ongoing war of aggression by the Umayyad Caliphate against the Byzantine Empire, the Arabs prepared a land and sea siege against the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. Located on a peninsula, it was easy enough to block the landward side of the city with a siege wall, engines, and army. But when the Arab navy attempted to approach the city from the seaward side via the Golden Horn, the Byzantine navy deployed their secret weapon, Greek fire. Greek fire is a mysterious substance whose exact composition is unknown to historians and the modern world, its recipe being kept a state secret by the Byzantines for centuries. Incidentally, its use was often paired with a type of nozzle to spray it that closely resembled a modern flamethrower that sprayed the substance on its victims. It not only stuck to and burned everything it touched, including water, but was thought to be ignited by water. Its use would be instrumental in saving Constantinople and the Byzantines on numerous occasions, but none more so than during this first siege of Constantinople by the Arabs in 717 CE. Local sources report that a Byzantine squadron attacked the Arab rearguard of 20 ships that had the misfortune to be blown within target distance of the city walls by an unfavorable wind. Many ships burned and sank, while others sailed away, wreathed in flames that historians believe were probably a mix of blue and silver. Not long after the defeated Arabs retreated from the Horn, the Byzantines raised their boom chain and effectively prevented any further access by sea to their vulnerable northern walls. 
George has been very open about taking inspiration for the Battle of the Blackwater from this siege of Constantinople, though of course he admits to other inspirations and to exaggeration, saying fantasy is bigger, so wildfire is Greek fire times ten. It's Greek fire, but it's worse than Greek fire, and it's got a little magical element to it. He's been less forthcoming about another less dramatic nautical tactic employed by Tyrion Lannister, but when one pokes around in the annals of the type of history we know he consumes, we can find multiple examples of block ships such as those used on the King's Landing waterfront to prevent or slow Stannis landing ships. The use of block ships to prevent access to or use of a waterway is a simple and likely ancient idea. We have examples of their use in real life in 11th century Denmark in Roskildefjord, in multiple places in England and Scotland, including in Dorset in the Orkney Islands during World War I, and most recently by the Russians during their 2014 annexation of Crimea. Most of these block ships would have been hulks or ships that are no longer seaworthy. It's worth noting that Tyrion Lannister also used hulks packed full of wildfire as basically floating bombs in an uber-fantastical and macabre mimicry of some of the other uses hulks are put to in real life, including as supply ships, salvage vessels, and, most significantly, powder hulks, which were used to store gunpowder and thus were likely an only slightly more stable version of Tyrion's wildfire hulks. And speaking of Tyrion, let's now take a look at a major moment in his arc that becomes a minor mystery in the story, when Kingsguard Sir Mandon Moore attempted to assassinate him aboard the Bridge of Ships. When Tyrion rode out of the city, leading the charge to meet Stannis' disembarking forces along the riverfront, Moore rode to his right, carrying Joffrey's banner, and it seemed as if Tyrion would be well guarded. But in hindsight, we have to wonder if Sir Mandon was waiting for an opportune moment to betray and kill Tyrion under cover of the chaos of war. When Tyrion lost his balance as the ship he was on began to break apart, he nearly fell into the water. Then he heard someone calling his name. Here's a passage. My lord, take my hand, my lord Tyrion. There on the deck of the next ship, across a widening gulf of black water, stood Sir Mandon Moore, his hand extended. Yellow and green fire shone against the white of his armor, and his lobstered gauntlet was sticky with blood. But Tyrion reached for it all the same, wishing his arms were longer. It was only at the very last, as their fingers brushed across the gap, that something niggled at him. Sir Mandon was holding out his left hand. Why? Was that why he reeled backward, or did he see the sword after all? He would never know. The point slashed just beneath his eyes, and he felt its cold, hard touch, and then a blaze of pain. As we mentioned earlier, Sir Mandon ultimately didn't succeed in his assassination attempt because of Tyrion's squire. Podrick Payne was the unlikeliest of defenders, but when he pushed the heavily armoured man into the Blackwater, his quick thinking saved Tyrion's life. Tyrion later recalls the incident as he attempts to understand the plot against him. He thinks, 
the bridge of boats, Sir Mandon Moore, a hand, a sword coming at his face. If I had not pulled back, that cut would have taken off the top of my head. Jamie had always said that Sir Mandon was the most dangerous of the King's Guard because his dead empty eyes gave no hint to his intentions. I should never have trusted any of them. He'd known that Sir Merrin and Sir Boros were his sisters and Sir Osmond later, but he had let himself believe that the others were not wholly lost to honour. Cersei must have paid him to see that I never came back from that battle. Why else? I never did Sir Mandon any harm that I know of. Tyrion touched his face, plucking at the proud flesh with blunt, thick fingers. Another gift from my sweet sister. So Tyrion believes that Cersei ordered the hit, which is a reasonable deduction given all of her plots and machinations. And yet, Sir Mandon had little love for Tyrion. As the guard on the council chamber door when Tyrion arrived at King's Landing as Tywin's surrogate, there was a tense confrontation between the two. And later, it was Mandon Moore who pulled Tyrion away from Joffrey when Tyrion kicked him in the aftermath of the bread riot. So, although Tyrion thinks he never did Sir Mandon any harm, it might be equally reasonable to conclude that he acted alone, merely seeking to rid himself of an annoyance and his king of an aggressive and threatening uncle. However, in A Storm of Swords, we learn that Sir Mandon came to King's Landing from the Vale. Tyrion sends Bronn out to seek as much information as he can about Mandon Moore, but Bronn turns up little that's useful in the way of proving what his motivations were. Hoping to succeed where Bronn had failed, Tyrion remarks to a curious Lord Varys that his research has led him to the conclusion that the knight was quite friendless. Agreeing, Varys tells Tyrion, Lord Arryn brought him to King's Landing, and Robert gave him his white cloak, but neither loved him much, I fear. Varys goes on to point out that Barristan Salmi had once commented that Mandon's only friend was his sword and his only purpose, duty. As the spider suggests, by those lights, our brave Sir Mandon was the perfect white knight, and he died as a knight of the King's Guard ought, with sword in hand, defending one of the King's own blood. So, having established that Mandon Moore appeared to be without friends, let's consider the phrase quite friendless. Those words are echoed, in a way, by Littlefinger to Sansa in A Storm of Swords. He says, You could turn King's Landing upside down and not find a single man with a mockingbird sewn over his heart, but that does not mean I am friendless. So there is a sort of connection there, two apparently friendless boys from the Vale, brought to King's Landing by John Aaron. We think there's a case to be made that Littlefinger may have either found it in his interest to plant an agent on the King's Guard, or found it advantageous to recruit a fellow Valeman to his service later when the opportunity arose. In support of this, in A Storm of Swords, Baelish comments to Sansa that Osmond Kettleblack, another of his agents, has, quote, become especially unreliable since he joined the King's Guard. That white cloak does things to a man, I find. Even a man like him. It's the two words, I find, that are particularly interesting here, implying that Baelish has some past experience with white cloaks in his employ. 
it's also noteworthy that their exchange on the subject ends with Littlefinger's advice. Clean hands, Sansa. Whatever you do, make certain your hands are clean. As for a possible motive, it should be noted that it's mostly through Tyrion's point of view in A Clash of Kings that the reader becomes increasingly aware of the scope of Peter Baelish's scheming. And then Tyrion has the following exchange with Littlefinger as they discuss bringing Lysa Arryn back into the royal fold. He says, If I gave Lysa John Arryn's true killer, she might think more kindly of me. That made Littlefinger sit up. True killer? I confess, you make me curious. Who do you propose? Though Tyrion cagily declines to answer the direct question, considering that we eventually learn that Peter Baelish was behind John Arryn's death, his statement could certainly have been interpreted as a threat. And so, in spite of a lack of certainty, this could surely be a motive to try to remove Tyrion from the board. Perhaps an offhand comment to Sir Mandon about the Acti Hand's prospects for surviving another riot or a battle, along with a reminder of a patron's gratitude, is all it took. And given that we know that Baelish eventually went to great lengths to implicate Tyrion in the plot to kill Joffrey, going as far as sending Oswell Kettleback to Pentos to hire a pair of performing dwarfs, we'd suggest Mandon's failed attempt was just the first iteration of Peter Baelish's plot to rid himself of a potentially dangerous opponent. Yeah, and considering that it wasn't until A Dance with Dragons that Penny revealed to Tyrion the name of the man who hired her and her brother and brought them to King's Landing, we think that it's still very much in the cards for Tyrion to one day put all the pieces together and realize that it was Littlefinger all along. Up next, we'll conclude our analysis with a discussion of the aftermath and the price of victory, followed by an analysis of turning points and the razor's edge of history, even, and perhaps especially, history of the fictional variety. My hirelings betray me. My friends are scourged and shamed. And I lie here rotting. I thought I won the bloody battle. Is this what triumph tastes like? Sun Tzu said, Victory is reserved for those who are willing to pay its price. At Blackwater, there was no shortage of commanders willing to pay the price of victory. Stannis Baratheon ruthlessly seized his younger brother's armor and stronghold at a price many men would have balked at in his effort to achieve a victory. Tyrion Lannister willingly sacrificed the royal fleet, its captains and sailors, to ensure that his fiery trap could be convincingly sprung, but perhaps reckoned without the price he would pay to his own father. Speaking of whom, it would appear that Tywood Lannister paid the lowest price of all— his losses were limited mainly to men and gold, after all, two things he was ever willing to spend in abundance. But on a more subtle note, perhaps it could be said that Tywin lost face in the Riverlands when he failed to make the crossing into the west, but as he then turned away from his home territory to march on King's Landing, it's unclear if he would view it as such. 
As it happened, though, the victory at the capital would serve to prop up his dynasty for only a short time. Within a handful of months, both Joffrey and Tywin would be dead, Tyrion fled to Essos, Cersei arrested by the Faith, and Jaime Awol in the Riverlands. And these events, for the most part, can all be attributed more or less directly to the alliances made by House Lannister with Peter Baelish and House Tyrell in advance of the victory at Blackwater. And so, the question of price remains. Yeah, a defeat for House Lannister would certainly have led to the deaths of those family members in the capital, as evidenced by Cersei's willingness to call upon Illyn Payne to ensure that she, along with Sansa Stark, didn't fall into Stannis's hands. Whether Sir Illyn would have also been commanded to execute Joffrey before Stannis could is a question that's never addressed, but there can be no doubt that any Lannisters in the city would have been captured and likely executed by a victorious Stannis. However, we shouldn't forget that had Tywin failed to rescue the city, he himself would have lived on, along with Tommen, who had been moved to safety, and Jaime, who likely would have remained imprisoned at Riverrun with no Tyrion around to fulfill the promise of returning Catelyn's daughters. As interesting as that is to contemplate, and with a compelling case to be made that Tywin might have been better off in the short term had King's Landing fallen to Stannis, that ultimately the price he paid was his own and his grandson's lives, we want to now consider the aftermath of the battle that did occur. While there were grievous losses on both sides, heavy prices paid by many individuals and their families, there were also rewards to be had amongst the victors, and we shouldn't forget Stannis and his greatly reduced army at Dragonstone. With this battle being so large and devastating, George really had to shade a lot of characters into his world-building to detail the scale of the occasion. There needed to be a laundry list of casualties to convey the truth of war, a selection of hostages to highlight the cost to Stannis, distribution of spoils of war for the victors, and a depiction of the devastation on the waterfront and of shipwrecks sunk in Blackwater Bay to capture the carnage of the wildfire. Throughout the action, we witnessed death and destruction all around, but given the limitations of the point-of-view style, George drops information about the battle and its aftermath into the later pages of the series, all of which serves to create a sense of depth and realism while alleviating the fog of war. So now we're going to piece together much of this information and focus on the notable casualties and captives of the conflict. Let's start with the damage to Stannis' forces and walk through their losses. Lord Bryce Caron is first mentioned as an outstanding knight when he jousts at the hands tourney in A Game of Thrones, falling to Jaime Lannister. Sworn to Storm's End and hailing from Nightsong in the Dornish marches, he comes from a line of fierce warriors dating back to the Age of Heroes. Notably, he was named to Renly's Rainbow Guard as Bryce the Orange, and given command of the left flank of Renly's army that would have faced Stannis if not for the intervention of Melisandre's shadow assassin. He remained sworn to Storm's End, meaning Stannis, after Renly's death, and post-Blackwater, Sansa witnesses an assembly wherein the spoils of war are distributed to the victors. It's here that we learn of the fate of Bryce the Orange. 
Next came four of lesser birth who had distinguished themselves in the fighting, including the one-eyed knight, Sir Philip Foote, who had slain Lord Bryce Caron in single combat. Joffrey declared Sir Philip to be Lord of House Foot and granted him, quote, all the lands, rights, and incomes of House Caron. With Bryce's only surviving relative, his bastard half-brother Roland Storm, there are no members of House Caron on hand to object, and that's because Sir Roland was with Stannis, the commander of his rearguard at the Blackwater, holding off Tywin's men long enough for Stannis to make his escape on Salador San's ships and later named Castellan of Dragonstone. He claims the title Lord of Nightsong as Stannis's man, but his ultimate fate after Loras Tyrell's assault on Dragonstone in A Feast for Crows remains unknown. Bryce the Orange wasn't the only one of Renly's former Rainbow Guard to fight with Stannis and lose his life. As we mentioned earlier, Sir Guyard Morrigan, known as the Green for his role in the Rainbow Guard, also went over to Stannis following Renly's bizarre and unexpected shadow death, and Stannis shows great faith in him when he places him in command of his vanguard. But Guyard was killed on the riverbank by Garland Tyrell, a critical moment in the battle as we mentioned. His older brother, Lord Lester Morrigan, survived the battle and remains one of Stannis's loyal lords. He will later accompany him to the north. The Fossaways of Cider Hall and the Reach also lost two prominent members, while the Fossaways of New Barrel, the so-called Green Apples, seem to have escaped this fate when their Sir John was captured. Sansa Watcher's Joffrey pledge a knighthood along with lands in the Riverlands to the free rider Lothar Brune. It says, Lothar Brune cut his way through half a hundred Fossaway men-at-arms to capture Sir John of the Green Apple and kill Sir Brian and Sir Edward of the Red, thereby winning himself the name Lothar Apple Eater. In a conversation between Elio Garcia and George in 2000, the author said that Following Lothar's experience with House Fossaway, he amended his personal arms to include the cores of one green apple and two reds to highlight his apple-eating achievements. And notably, the Fossaways have deep connections with House Tyrell. Sir John is married to Mace Tyrell's younger sister, and Garland Tyrell's wife is a Fossaway. Perhaps one of the most enduring minor mysteries of the Blackwater is why these notable Houses of the Reach chose to follow Stannis in the first place. As we speculated earlier in our analysis, for those who had already defied the Iron Throne, supporting Stannis might have seemed like their safest bet, not to mention that if any of them actually believed what Stannis had to say about Joffrey's parentage, Stannis would be seen as the true heir. One faction not jumping for joy after the battle was House Valerian. Lord of the Tides, Master of Driftmark, and head of the house, Monfred Valerian was burned to death by wildfire when his ship caught alight. Davo Seaworth witnessed the devastation. Lord Valerian's shining pride of Driftmark was trying to turn, but the demon ran a lazy green finger across her silvery oars and they flared up like so many tapers. For an instant, she seemed to be stroking the river with two banks of long, bright torches. Lord Monford had sided with Stannis from the outset, but had urged his lord to directly attack King's Landing before engaging Renly. 
In hindsight, such a course might have caught the defenders unawares, bringing Stannis the victory he craved. When it finally came to battle, he didn't even reach the shores, and Alistair Florent later informs Davos that Monford Valerion died with his ship. His six-year-old son, Monteris, succeeded him and the house remains one of Stannis' supporters, but it's easy to imagine that his family could be disillusioned that Stannis failed to follow their lord's advice. And in fact, Lord Monford's bastard half-brother Orain Waters was captured and bent the knee to Joffrey, eventually being named Grand Admiral by Cersei, on account of his slight resemblance to Rhaegar Targaryen. As we know, Orain is set to be a significant minor player in the Winds of Winter, having made off with much of the newly rebuilt royal fleet and set himself up for a life of piracy in the Stepstones. As for House Florent, Stannis's Lord High Captain and brother-in-law Imri also failed to land, perishing when Stannis's flagship Fury burned on the river. At Dragonstone, Alistair also informs Davos that... My own son is safe at Brightwater, but I lost a nephew on Fury, Sir Imri, my brother Ryan's son. Notably, Lord Alistair is in prison at that moment and seems unaware that his lands and Brightwater Keep have been bestowed upon Garland Tyrell by the victorious Lannisters, and his heir, Alakine, has fled to the High Tower in Old Town for refuge. Lord Alistair himself likely never learned the truth of the matter, as he would be executed by Stannis for treason not long after— burned at the stake by Melisandre to gain favorable winds from her red god. In the moment, Davos reflects how Imri Florent, quote, led them blindly up the Blackwater Rush with all oars pulling, paying no heed to the small stone towers at the mouth of the river. Davos was not like to forget him. And of course, Davos has very good reason not to forget Imri's brash naivety, not only because it led to their defeat, but because House Seaworth suffered tremendous losses in the process. Davos had been accompanied by four of his sons on the dangerous starboard wing of Stannis's fleet. Dale, the eldest, who had taken a wife and was trying for a child, died aboard Wraith in the Inferno. His second son, Allard, was aboard Lady Maria, which was destroyed by the explosion. The third son, Mathos, present on Davos's own Black Betha, also perished in the flames, while his fourth son, Marek, or master of Stannis's own war galley, Fury, suffered the same end. Four sons, four ships, and a total destruction of all. Of his five sons at the battle, only his fifth son, Devon, serving as Stannis' squire, survived the carnage. Contemplating this tragic outcome from the rock he was marooned upon in the Blackwater Bay after the battle, Davos figuratively shakes his fist at the cruel gods of fate. Why should I live? Gods be good, why? My sons are dead. Dale and Allard, Marek and Mathos, perhaps Devon as well. How can a father outlive so many strong young sons? How would I go on? I'm a hollow shell. The crabs died. There's nothing left inside. Don't they know that? Altogether, there were widespread casualties amidst Stannis' forces, many of which came as a direct result of Tyrion's wildfire plot. 
And they weren't all high-profile deaths. There are mentions and insinuations to other lesser-known casualties added by George to project the scope of the losses. Jate Blackberry, the captain of the gates at Dragonstone, is missing and presumed dead, while Davos's acquaintances Hookface Will and Hal the Hog are confirmed dead. In A Feast for Crows, Brienne learns that Sir Richard Farrow, Will the Stork, and Big Ben Bushy, three of the men who had cruelly competed for her maidenhead in Renly's camp, all perished, though whether in the service of Stannis or the Tyrells is unknown. And then in Dance with Dragons, we hear that at least some who fought for Stannis but didn't get rescued by Salador San's ships were able to get away from the capital in the aftermath, notably Kem of Fleabottom, whom Tyrion meets in Slaver's Bay many months later. And among supporters Stannis never even knew he had, the captured antlermen were taken by Joffrey and flung from trebuchets with antlers nailed to their heads into the thick of the action, as witnessed by Tyrion aboard the Bridge of Ships. But, with all the human casualties mounting up, the vast majority of them remaining unnamed and unacknowledged, let's spare a thought for a notable non-human casualty. Mark Mullendore not only lost his arm at the Blackwater, but his beautiful black-and-white pet monkey too. The monkey hailed from the Summer Isles, if you were wondering, and Brienne recalls seeing Mark sitting outside his pavilion at Bitterbridge with his monkey on his shoulder in a little suit of chainmail, the two of them making faces at each other. Ah, a monkey in chainmail. Isn't that cute? Sadly, the chainmail didn't protect the little fellow when Mullendore took his pet into battle at the Blackwater, where the monkey was slain in unknown circumstances. Mark is later noted to be looking for a replacement monkey, and so he evidently misses his friend. So why don't we have a moment's silence for Mark Mullendore's monkey? <laughs> The pile of charred corpses on Stannis' side was not the only tragedy at Blackwater. In spite of the green firebomb, Stannis was able to land thousands of his troops along the riverbank and was experienced enough to marshal a decent tilt at the capital from a position of adversity. So now it's time to consider the losses to Joffrey's forces. First, and probably most significantly, is Sir Jacelyn Bywater, recently raised to Commander of the City Watch by acting hand Tyrion Lannister when Janos Slint was sent to the Wall. As we mentioned earlier, Bywater was killed by his own men when he tried to prevent them running away after Joffrey was brought back to the Red Keep by his mother. Bywater had been a true and worthy servant to Tyrion, and his death is symbolic of Tyrion's evaporating power following the battle. And speaking of Tyrion's fall from grace, the moment that changed the trajectory of his story was, of course, when Sir Mandon Moore turned on him. The fact that Bronn tells Tyrion that Moore drowned would seem to indicate his body was recovered after Podrick Payne shoved him fully armoured into the water to save Tyrion's life. So, the two biggest casualties to House Lannister in terms of name recognition, Mandon Moore and Jacelyn Bywater, were both killed by their own forces. Moore's death particularly speaks volumes about the conflict within the Lannister camp, which will reach fever pitch when Tyrion later murders Tywin and Cersei calls for his head. 
Considering this will all be in direct response to Joffrey's death, the immediate seeds of these events were certainly laid at Blackwater and its leader. Sander Clegane is another significant loss on the Lannister side, though he wasn't technically a casualty. He fled the city after the wildfire triggered his PTSD so badly he refused the order to fight on. After he tried unsuccessfully to convince Sansa Stark to accompany him, he would vanish into the Riverlands for a time to resurface in Arya Stark's point of view with the Brotherhood Without Banners. It should be noted that, with the casualties among the relief force fairly minimal, the majority of casualties amongst the victors were suffered by the defenders inside the city, with over 1,500 gold cloaks dead or deserted, nearly all of the sellswords, knights, and men-at-arms also dead or grievously wounded, and Tyrion's mountain clansmen chased away from the city in the aftermath before they could claim any reward. But aside from death and injury, there are other losses to be felt, mainly by Stannis, in the battle's aftermath. Sansa witnesses a parade of captured men from Stannis' side bending the knee to King Joffrey after their defeat, some of them making very valuable hostages in the Lannister effort to quell any lingering opposition to their victory. As we mentioned earlier, John Fossaway, a green apple, was captured by Lothar Brun and bent his knee to the crown. So too did Tanton Fossaway of the Red Apple. The pious Boniface Hasty, former love interest of Princess Rhaella Targaryen, according to Barristan Selmy, had switched from Renly to Stannis, taking his Holy Hundred warriors with him. Fourteen of them perished in battle, and ultimately he conceded a feat and bent his knee to Joffrey. Other prominent noble hostages to bend the knee include Sir Ronit Connington, Lord Ardrian Celtigar, Lord Estamont, Stannis' grandfather on his mother's side, Sir Mark Mullendore, Sans Monkey, Sir Donald Swan, Balon Swan's brother, and Sir Dermot of the Rainwood, along with the less notable Sir Timon the Scrapesword, Sir Shadrick of the Shady Glen, Lord Stephen Varner, Lord Alessander Stedman, and three members of House Willem. It's worth noting that some of these men fought for Stannis throughout the invasion and were captured and defeated, but some switched from Stannis to Joffrey mid-battle. It's impossible to know which characters defected in this manner, but the distinction is noted in Sansa's point of view following the battle. It says, Those who had changed their allegiance during the battle needed only to swear fealty to Joffrey, but the ones who had fought for Stannis until the bitter end were compelled to speak. Their words decided their fate. If they begged forgiveness for their treasons and promised to serve loyally henceforth, Joffrey welcomed them back into the king's peace and restored them to all their lands and rights. But a handful of the captured remained defiant. Sansa witnessed a, quote, bastard son of some Florent or another, continue to threaten Joffrey. The young king responded by signalling to Ilin Payne to strike off his head, but then another dissenting captive raised his voice and shouted, Joffrey is the black worm eating the heart of the realm. Darkness was his father and death his mother. Destroy him before he corrupts you all. Destroy them all, queen whore and king worm, vile dwarf and whispering spider, the false flowers. Save yourselves before the gold cloaks intervene. Of that scene, it says, Joffrey lurched to his feet. I'm king. Kill him. Kill him now. I command it. 
he chopped down with his hand a furious angry gesture and screeched in pain when his arm brushed against one of the sharp metal fangs that surrounded him. The bright crimson samite of his sleeve turned a darker shade of red as his blood soaked through it. "'Mother!' he wailed. Joffrey left the throne room sobbing with his mother, but in spite of the small chorus of rebellious voices, his victory was decisive enough, and with enough noble hostages taken, to more or less put an end to the immediate threat posed by Stannis Baratheon. As Tywin would say in council some weeks later, Stannis Baratheon's son set on the Blackwater. But given that Stannis still has loyal followers gathered about him, including his soon-to-be hand and newly-made lord, Davos Seaworth, we shouldn't discount him so quickly. In A Storm of Swords, Stannis will perceive a different, if more roundabout, way to achieve his goals, and will set off to the Wall in response to a letter from the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch seeking help in defeating a foe from beyond the Wall that's threatening Westeros. May the Red God grant him fair winds and following seas. We've thus far mentioned a handful of the major actors from the battle, along with a number of more minor characters getting their just rewards in one way or another. The captains of the royal fleet who managed to survive were honoured, as was Helene of the Pyromancers. Peter Baelish was, inexplicably to our POV Sansa Stark, granted the great castle of Harrenhal, previously bestowed upon Janos Slint by Joffrey. Lancel Lannister was granted Darry and all its lands and holdings in absentia as he was still recovering from his wounds. Garland Tyrell, as we mentioned, was granted Brightwater Keep, the seat of House Florent, and Sir Adam Marbrand was made captain of the City Watch. But perhaps most notable are a couple of characters whose rewards failed to match their contributions. Lord Randall Tarley, Mace Tyrell's primary military commander, in charge of the center battle of the Army of the Reach during the Blackwater, was sent almost immediately to Duskendale to deal with Helmut Tallhart and Robert Glover, who in turn had been sent there to raid with spurious orders from Roose Bolton. Randall received very little recognition for his contributions in the way of lands and riches. Given that his wife is the eldest daughter of Lord Alistair Florent, many think that Randall might have expected to be granted Brightwater Keep for himself, which instead went to Mace's son Garland. Time will tell if Randall Tarley has an axe to grind on that score, but we don't have to wait long to know that Tyrion Lannister is greatly displeased and disgruntled by the distinct lack of recognition or reward he is given. While the wounded Lancel is granted Darian absentia, Tyrion is never mentioned, and when he does rise from his sickbed weeks later, his father doesn't seem to think his contributions were all that noteworthy. Not only does Tywin appropriate the military victory to himself and the army of the Reach, but Cersei is given credit for the wildfire and Littlefinger for the Tyrell alliance. Yeah, Tywin does rather begrudgingly acknowledge that the chain was clever and that Tyrion deserves the credit for the allegiance with Dorne. In all this, we can perceive Cersei's hand, since it's easy to imagine her telling a version of events in which Tyrion received as little credit as possible, and since she herself viewed the Dornish allegiance only through the lens of Tyrion taking Marcella away from her, 
and she probably failed to appreciate the significance of neutralizing the Dornish army poised on their border. Ultimately, in their first meeting after the battle, Tywin upbraids his youngest son not only for the empty threats he made against Tommen to protect Alalea during the battle, but for his association with sex workers in general. His offer of justice to Doran Martell, and, in a festering blast from the past, his role in his mother's death. While all of the above no doubt played a role in Tywin refusing Tyrion the reward he requested, being acknowledged as heir to Casterly Rock, possibly the most stinging rebuke in the moment came from Tywin's apparent indifference to Tyrion's leadership in the battle, and the disfiguring wound he suffered as a result. Here's the exchange. What madness possessed you? The foe was at the gates with the battering ram. If Jamie had led the sortie, you'd call it valour. Jamie would never be so foolish as to remove his helm in battle. Gone is the implied approval of You Are My Son in the wake of the Battle of the Green Fork and Jamie's capture, and returned is a lifetime of scorn and rejection. As we've pointed out, Tyrion took absolute care in the matter of wearing his helm and of ensuring that Joffrey also kept his helm on, visor closed, until it came to a choice of drowning inside it on the bridge of ships or surviving. And it was after that choice made in a moment of chaos and peril, that he was met with a threat from a supposedly friendly figure, a Kingsguard charged with protecting the king's family, i.e. Tyrion, with his own life. These two realities are things that, for a variety of reasons, Tyrion can never convey to his father, and so he must swallow the criticism, but oh, how it must have rankled. And besides the fact we can detect weeks of Cersei having her father's ear in all of Tywin's responses, we do wonder if by this time he's had news that Catelyn Stark has released Jaime. In A Game of Thrones, Tyrion thought his father had given Jaime up for dead, but now, in A Storm of Swords, the opposite is true. When Tyrion asks for Casterly Rock, something Jaime had given up in any case when he joined the Kingsguard 18 years previously, Tywin refers to it as your brother's birthright, possibly indicating that he knows Jaime is on the loose and that he's making plans to release him from his vows. Certainly, it would make little sense for Tywin to be planning an event such as the Red Wedding, which we observe the first hints of in this chapter, if he thought Jamie was still a hostage at Riverrun. Yeah, and to bring the focus around to Tywin's secret plans, it's in the same chapter that Tyrion confronts his father after rising from his sickbed that Tywin declares he has important letters to finish. Tyrion naturally takes this as a cold shoulder, but Tywin tells him, Some battles are won with swords and spears, and others with quills and ravens. This brings us full circle to Chinese military strategist and philosopher Sun Tzu, whose quote about victory opened this segment. For Sun Tzu also had this to say about victory. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Tywin's secret and subtle plans to defeat Rob Stark once and for all, without fighting, will consume the remaining months of his life, and so ultimately the price of the Lannister victory at Blackwater will be a very steep one indeed for Rob Stark, his army, his family, and all the lords who remain loyal to him. We'll have more to say on that in the final segment, 
where we'll recap many of the turning points in the build-up to the battle and try to answer the question of its impact. But first, let's turn it over to Sir Bronn of the Blackwater. Hello listeners of Radio Westeros, Sir Bronn of the Blackwater here again. I survived the battle and got made into a knight for my trouble, dabbed by the High Septon and dubbed by the Kingsguard, all proper like, told you I would. I even have a knightly sigil, a flaming chain, green on a smoke-grey field. I'm back now to tell you that Lord Tyrion Lannister, the creator of the chain himself, wants you to know the war isn't over yet. You might think it's safe to move back into that waterfront area I tossed you out of before the battle, but it isn't, see? You can go ahead and sell your fish on the quays, but if you start throwing your hovels up against the wall, I'll have no choice but to move you off again. And if you refuse, I'll come out with a few dozen gold cloaks and sort you out good. See if I don't. You've been warned. And by the way, if you do see me riding out beyond the walls, don't forget to call me Sir. In real life, history often turns on the smallest of moments. Events in A Song of Ice and Fire are no different. Throughout this analysis, we've discussed numerous minor events that turned out to be decisive. And as part of our conclusion, we wanted to recap a few of those razor's edge moments to help us answer the greater question. What was the overall impact of the Battle of the Blackwater on the War of the Five Kings? Wildfire clearly had a major role to play in the Lannister victory, no matter who is given credit for it. But would the wildfire have been as impactful had there been less of it? In Tyrion 11 of A Clash of Kings, he gets an update from Helene of the Pyromancer's Guild on their progress with producing the substance, and the results are almost beyond belief. Helene claims that the Guild uses certain spells in their production process, which are working better than they were. He follows this up with a question about dragons, and a bit of forgotten lore. You don't suppose there are any dragons about, do you? I was just remembering something Old Wisdom Politor told me once, when I was an acolyte. I'd asked him why so many of our spells seemed well, not as effectual as the scrolls would have us believe. And he said it was because magic had begun to go out of the world the day the last dragon died. So chalk one up to Daenerys' dragons unwittingly having a part to play. And another character who may have affected the outcome significantly without ever realising it is Arya Stark. At Harrenhal, she discovers that the Lorathi sellsword Jack and Hagar is indebted to her for saving him, Rorge, and Biter from the fire at the holdfast near the god's eye. Here's their exchange. A man pays his debts. A man owes three. Three? The red god has his due, sweet girl, and only death may pay for life. This girl took three that were his. This girl must give three in their places. Speak the names, and a man will do the rest. The first name she speaks is Chiswick, one of the hated mountains men whose story about the group's atrocities triggers her rage-filled memories of the traumatic days in the storehouse on the lakeshore. But the second name she gives is born of impulse. 
angry at the under-steward at Harrenhal who oversees her servitude, she gives Jekin his name, only to regret it almost immediately when she witnesses Tywin and his army marching out the castle gates in all their war glory to bring the battle to her brother in the west. It says... A shiver crept up Arya's spine as she watched them pass under the great iron portcullis of Harrenhal. Suddenly she knew that she had made a terrible mistake. I'm so stupid, she thought. Wees did not matter, no more than Chiswick had. These were the men who mattered, the ones she ought to have killed. Last night she could have whispered any of them dead. If only she hadn't been so mad at Wees for hitting her and lying about the capon. Lord Tywin, why didn't I say Lord Tywin? Imagine a story where Arya spoke Tywin's name to Jack and Hagar. The ripples there would have been more of a tidal wave in the irony of giving the Red God Tywin Lannister in exchange for Rorge and Biter of all people would be too delicious to bear. Alas, it was not to be, and so Weez perished, and Tywin marched on to meet Arya's uncle Edmure at the fords of the Red Fort. And this is the classic what-if moment. After taking heavy losses over several days of attempting to cross the fords as the speediest way to return to the west to deal with Rob Stark's pillaging forces, Tywin concedes the victory of what would become known as the Battle of the Fords to Edmure Tully and turns back. It was then he was met by a scout from the Tyrell army and began his march to relieve the city from Stannis. There can be little doubt that had he won the crossing, the outcome of the Battle of the Blackwater would have been very different, as Brynden Tully loses no time in pointing out to his nephew Edmure when he and Rob return from the West. But what's not often considered is something we pointed out earlier, that Tywin might have also been personally better off if he'd won through the Fords. That is, his ultimate death was seeded in his alliance with Mace Tyrell and their victory at King's Landing. And even if Rob Stark was planning his own counterattack against a Lannister army returned to the West, there's no guarantee Tywin would have been defeated, only that he wouldn't have been at King's Landing to defeat Stannis. Which brings up a second detail not often considered, that is, what Mace Tyrell would have done had the alliance with Tywin not been possible. Would he have still acted on the request of support, buoyed by the promise of a crown for his daughter? Could the Army of the Reach have actually fought off Stannis Baratheon's assault without the Army of the West? Impossible to say in the end, but this is as good a time as any to raise the inscrutable motivations of one Peter Baelish. It was apparently Littlefinger's idea to use Renly's armour to frighten Stannis's poor men-at-arms, but it was also he who took the offer of alliance from Tyrion and the Small Council to Highgarden in the first place. Had Peter Baelish decided at any point that his own interests would be better served by acting differently, well, the outcome at the Blackwater may have been very different indeed. And Stannis's entire effort was affected by a string of factors, decisions and events, at least some of which were out of his control. Consider if he had chosen the more cautious Davos Seaworth as his naval commander over the brash and inexperienced Imri Florent, or if he had been able to bring Courtney Penrose to heel more quickly. 
weeks of besieging Storm's End might have been saved if Loras Tyrell hadn't made off with Renly's body, leaving Stannis with no answer to Sir Courtney's repeated requests to see his lord's body, or if the weather had cooperated for his navy on their northward journey, perhaps Stannis's assault on the capital might have occurred days earlier, with Tywin and Mace Tyrell arriving too late to be of use. Or even if Stannis had used the days he spent south of the river waiting for his ships to arrive in attacking and tearing down the southern winch tower, imagine the destruction in lives and ships that could have been avoided if Tyrion's chain had been neutralised before it could be deployed. And finally, there's the unanswerable question of what impact Melisandre's presence at the battle might have had. Could she have been of greater use at Stannis's side than waiting for him at Dragonstone? Given the outcomes at both Storm's End and later at Castle Black, with her present and actively participating in events, one has to wonder. And incidentally, this pattern doesn't exactly bode well for Stannis's eventual assault on Winterfell, where he has notably once again left his red sorceress behind with his queen. What tugging on all of these narrative threads actually proves is the enormous care and planning the author has taken in constructing a believable and compelling narrative. As much a set piece or spectacle as the battle is, it's as part of the sprawling War of the Five Kings that Blackwater finds its significance in the narrative. Stannis's defeat leads to him turning his sights to the north, and what happens with his army there in the Winds of Winter is bound to play a huge part in the success of northern resistance to Lannister rule. For a variety of reasons outlined earlier, Tywin's victory at Blackwater allowed him to focus on his War of Quills and Ravens, ultimately a euphemism for the decisive slaughter of Rob Stark and his supporters at the Red Wedding. Speaking of Starks, the Lannister victory at Blackwater also reset the board in such a way that Brienne of Tarth's mission to Tyrion as acting hand to exchange Jaime for Sansa and Arya was bound to fail, setting her up for the events of A Feast for Crows and her eventual reunion with Catelyn Stark in her reanimated form. The empowering of Roose Bolton, enabled by Tywin's victory at Blackwater, among other things, led to the defeat of Ironborn pretensions in the north via his son Ramsay's cruel use of Theon Greyjoy. And of course, as we've said, the seas of both Joffrey and Tywin's deaths are to be found in the alliance with the Tyrells, which will ultimately lead to Cersei's empowerment and perhaps their own future downfall. Finally, Marcella was sent to Dawn, and the tenuous Dornish alliance formed by Tyrion in advance of Blackwater. As events in Dawn continue to play out, we'll no doubt get an ever greater sense of how those threads can be traced back to Tyrion's efforts to safeguard his family and the city prior to Stannis's assault. We began our analysis with the observation that the ripples from Blackwater will be felt far outside of King's Landing, and so they would. No single event occurs in a vacuum, and so this isn't entirely surprising, but tracing the threads from seemingly minor events to major results and from those results forward into future plot points can be quite satisfying, and that's what we think George has done to perfection with the pivotal Battle of the Blackwater. 
Thanks so much for joining us for this second part of our analysis of the Battle of the Blackwater. We'll be back soon with another regular episode, but now, as always, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for the depth of A Song of Ice and Fire, and thanks to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. As usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here, too. Heartfelt thanks to AJ, Egg on the Six, The Only Arsling You Need, Alex, Allie B, Allie C, Amber, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brynden Beefish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion, The White Storm, Julie Beth Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword, Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Eirik, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Kaiser Suze of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Gorn Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there, or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.